Good afternoon, you hope. Please open your Bibles to Mark 8. We're going to read verses 31 through 38. Jesus foretells his death and resurrection. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of God. Hi, New Hope. Thanks for coming. So if you could bow your head so we can say a prayer and ask for God's help. Father, we, um, we are just in awe and uh, stand in amazement uh, at your church here, at New Hope Fellowship, the things that uh, you have done and, and are doing, we are eternally grateful for. Um, this day is no exception. Uh, Father, we, we are asking for your Holy Spirit to come and fill this room I feel all the believers that are here from the inside and shake up uh, their insides, clear out their ears, soften their hearts, loosen up their stiff necks, and allow the Word of God to penetrate deep within them here today. Father, I'm praying that the words that are spoken here today not come um, from men, per se, like me and Tim, but ultimately, we, we are used for you, and, and so that these words have much more power uh, and much more meaning than any meaning that Tim or I could give them. So we're praying that Jesus Christ is who people see and hear here tonight, or today, this, this afternoon. Uh, I'm praying that the Word of God and the Gospel and the cross is exalted here today. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Okay, so there's, there's two main questions that I'd like to cover. Two big why questions. The first why question is why did Jesus have to die? And frankly, this is probably one of the biggest why questions in all of humanity. The second question is kind of a subset buried within the first question. And the second question is, why did the Apostle Peter not understand who Jesus was? Why? So these uh, questions seem simple. But as we'll see during our investigation, the answers are really at the heart of the gospel and are essential to following Christ. So they are simple but profoundly important. So to put it all into context, 
these verses 31 to 38. Let's go back two verses and look at the immediately preceding verses, verses 29 and 30. So if you can open up your Bibles or your smartphones, turn to Mark 8, verses 29 and 30. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So the name of Christ comes from the Greek word Christos and is a translation of the Hebrew word for Messiah. And this means anointed one. So when someone says Jesus Christ, Christ is is not the last name of Jesus. How come everyone's laughing? You shouldn't laugh over that. So Jesus Christ means Jesus the Messiah or Jesus the Anointed One. Can you see Peter saying this with such confidence, with an attitude like, you are the Christ, of course. What kind of question is that? But does Peter really know what he is emphatically proclaiming. So we're going to circle back to this point at the end of the sermon. So let's continue and read on to verse 31. So follow along with me if you would. And he began teaching them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. So here we see in very simple, plain language that Jesus is predicting his death. This marks one of the first places that Jesus starts teaching about his suffering and death. As many of you know, the New Testament was first written in Greek. The Greek word in the earliest translation for must is dei which means exactly what it means in English. It means must. The word must modifies and controls the whole sentence, which means that everything that follows in the list in that sentence is a necessity. So some commentators have described that this word must is one of the single most important words in all of the Bible. So Jesus must suffer He must be rejected, and he must be killed. Jesus clearly and plainly says that he must suffer and die. He does not say that he could die, he would die, or that he should die. He says that he must suffer, he must be rejected, and he must die. So a very important question comes to mind. And it's still relevant today and still not well understood by our modern culture and sadly even within some evangelical circles. And that question is this. Why did Jesus have to die? Why? Why? So two terms that are biblical truths truths can help us understand this. One is penal substitutionary atonement and the other one is propitiation. So I see some people are starting to fall asleep already. 
And when you hear these theological terms, you can get a glaze over your eyes and just kind of a haze. But I think these terms at this point is quite important for us to understand these scriptures. So let's see if we can boil this down and simplify it into an easily digestible, understandable form so that we can clearly see what God is meaning in these words. So penal substitutionary atonement. If you look at it and break it down into three parts, penal means penalty, punishment. Substitutionary means somebody is substituted and takes that punishment, and then it results in an atonement or a forgiveness. So it makes sense. Penal substitutionary atonement, if you just look at the three words. What about propitiation? Probably a lot of you guys have heard this word in various places in Scripture and have no idea what it means. Well, propitiation comes from the Greek word telasmos, which means a substitute. Propitious means to make favorable. So how does all of this tie into why Jesus must die? I believe this can best be understood in his story. There are many analogies that many of you have probably heard over many years. And I have heard many myself. But I think the best one in my view that I've heard is the parable of the great Viking king. Have you heard of this great Viking king who was a great ruler, who was well-loved, who was very powerful, and he was the most powerful person in all of the kingdom at that time? In his kingdom, there was no suffering, there was no stealing, there was no killing, and everyone was happy. One day, there was a huge theft that occurred in the treasury. A huge amount of riches was stolen. So the king stand up and publicly decreed, whoever stole this will be brought to justice. We will find this person and we will torture and kill him by lashing. And so after he made that decree, shortly thereafter they found the thief. And the thief was brought to the king. And the thief ended up being his mother. So the king was in a conundrum. The king obviously loves his mother. But also the king is a just king. And he just made a public decree to punish by death the person that has stolen these riches. So the day came for the execution. And the whole town or the whole kingdom was in the Colosseum. And they brought, they brought down the mother. They wrapped her up in ropes. And they were getting ready to kill her. So the king did something very unexpected. He stood up. He took off his crown, took off his robe, and was practically naked, walked down from his throne, wrapped his arms around his mother, and said, kill me. And so the executioner did. And so he lashed the king and bloodied him until he died. And he fell down dead in blood and in gore. And his mom was alive and she walked away free. The king had substituted himself 
to receive the penalty that was meant for his mother so that her crime would be atoned or forgiven. He acted as a propitiation or a substitute for her. So our God is all-loving, all-good, all-knowing, and all-righteous. And all of these attributes come together and make sense and are held together on the cross. The King of Kings came down to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. He says, I want to save you. I want to take the punishment that was meant for you. I want to bear the wages of your sin. And I want to die so that you may live. But many in our society just cannot accept this dying Messiah on a cross concept. The sentiment of Gandhi illustrates this well. This comes from an autobiography of Mahatma Gandhi. I could accept Jesus as a martyr, an embodiment of sacrifice, and a divine teacher. His death on the cross was a great example to the world. But that there was anything like a mysterious or miraculous virtue in it, my heart could never accept. So to Gandhi and many in our society, their hearts just cannot accept that a king has to die and has to be humiliated and tortured slowly, hour after hour, spat upon, naked, crucified on a cross. It simply just does not register to them. It's too violent, too bloody, and too hard to swallow. Interestingly, in the culture during the time of the crucifixion, they also had great difficulty in accepting the suffering Messiah, especially one that had to die. So let's pick up back at today's Bible text in verses 32 and 33. So open up your Bibles, if you could. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of man. Now, is it just me, or are you also amazed at what just happened here? I'm going to illustrate this. I used to do this in Sunday school, and the kids loved it. I don't know if it's going to work here, so I'm going to just do an illustration. Imagine if this is Jesus here, and this is Peter, and those are the apostles, and all the apostles sitting there. So Jesus says, I must suffer, I must be rejected, and I must die. And Peter says, No, 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 no. Messiah not supposed to talk like that. Stop talking that way. And then Jesus says, turning away from Peter and looking at all of the people that are there, and he says, get behind me, Satan. Satan, stop having your influence on my followers. And he compels his followers to set their mind on the things of God and not on the things of man or the flesh. So the only other analogy that I can think even comes close to that. Let's say you were at the State of the Union with Obama, and he says something very unpresidential. You walk up to the stage, CNN is rolling and all this, and you say, Obama, come here. And you bring him down and say, no, 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 no. President's not supposed to talk like that. Stop that. 
It's just crazy. It doesn't make any sense. It's shocking. So are you shocked that Peter is rebuking God? So the Greek word for God is the same word used when Jesus rebukes demons. So Peter is condemning Jesus in very, very strong language. Are you flabbergasted that just a few seconds before in verse 29 and 30, that Peter was gleefully proclaiming, You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the Anointed One. And then one second later he says, Jesus, you shouldn't be talking like that. So how is this happening? To make matters worse and even more unbelievable, a similar sequence of events happens in Mark chapter 9 and then yet again in Mark chapter 10. And that is Jesus predicts his death and then right after, the disciples misunderstand. Why does Jesus have to keep repeating himself over and over again? Why? Why didn't, the, why didn't Peter and the disciples really understand who really Jesus was? Especially since they spent three years with him, saw him do all these miracles, raise people from the dead, heal people, cast out demons, turn water to wine. Well, it really boils down to a deep, ingrained misunderstanding of the Messiah in Jesus' day. There was actually several different expectations of the Messiah. To some, he would be a glorious king who would sit on a throne in Jerusalem and establish a theocratic rule over a reestablished nation of Israel. To others, he would be a military ruler who would come and overthrow the ruling Roman Empire. All the views had one common denominator. The Messiah would come and bring glory, honor, victory, power, and freedom to the oppression of the Jewish people. Most notably, the Messiah would come in strength and might and would bring universal peace and shalom. He would never come to suffer, face defeat, humiliation at the hands of an oppressor. But just think about this for a moment. Does it make sense that it would, that, that, does it not make sense, sorry, that it would be God who determines who the Messiah is, how he should come, not man? Moreover, it is pretty clear that God has predicted how the Messiah would come. In the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, And as a quick side note, if you ever want to engage some of your Jewish friends in who Jesus is, ask them to open up their Torah, which is the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible, and just read out loud Isaiah 53. And then ask them, who does that sound like? The text in Isaiah 53 is very closely describing the life and crucifixion of Jesus. So Jesus does not conform to what we think he should be. Rather, he transforms our hearts and minds to see him as he is, rather than what we arrogantly think he should be. So Romans 12.2 comes to mind, which was read earlier. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. 
not confirmation, but transformation. So Jesus comes along and basically contradicts everything that we have come to believe about divinity. He teaches that God's mercy is given to sinners and is not reserved solely for the righteous, that God's strength is exposed in weakness, not displayed in power, and that God does not conform to human expectations or desires, but rather he transforms our expectations and desires. Now we can see why it was so difficult for Peter and the disciples to correctly understand who Jesus really was. And in fact, no matter how many times Jesus stated this, it was not until that they saw the risen Jesus face to face, touched him, ate a meal with him, that the disciples really understood that he was God. No other religion has a founder that was both God and man and showed, showed true, unconditional love by dying for us. Not Muhammad, not Krishna, not Buddha, not Confucius, not Joseph Smith, not Brahma. So in summary, let's get back to those two questions that I posed at the beginning. So why did Jesus have to suffer and die? Why? Because an all-loving and all-righteous God showed us unconditional love and died for us whilst we were still sinners. That's Romans 5.8. All of this came together and is exemplified in the horrible violence and suffering that happened on the cross on our behalf. And why did the Apostle Peter and others find it so hard to understand who Jesus was? Because they were expecting a Messiah, the Savior, to conform to their expectations and desires rather than the other way around. My friends, Jesus came in a radical very unexpected way. There never has or never will be another God-man that loves you and, and has an unbelievable love, but at the same time has extreme, pure righteousness. There will never be another that comes that has that that can compare to our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're going to ask Tim to come up and do the second half. Thank you, Alex. Uh, let's pray. Uh, Father, um, Alex, as Alex, my brother, prayed, let these words not be uh, anything that is from uh, Alex or myself, but, Father, that the truth, uh, despite us, uh, is proclaimed. In Jesus' Lord's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so as we heard from Alex... Uh, regarding Peter's um, error in understanding God's ultimate will. Hopefully, you also heard here at New Hope about the offensiveness of the gospel and the character of Christ. Still, you may have felt that maybe you're observing these truths from the outside in, uh, like listening to a narrative or a story or a description of somebody else. Well, in the next verses, uh, this changes to be a little bit more up and close and personal. So let's read um, uh, these verses again. And 
Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and, pro- and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So as we see in this narrative, we see Jesus churn, as Alex very vividly portrayed to his apostles, but now he churns to the crowd. Now, you may not have felt like a disciple or an apostle, but now he's churning to the crowd. You're no longer excused, even on that level. So, we are meant to hear. We are the crowd. And of course, the entire Bible is for us to hear and read. But here's a particular emphasis and almost a picture of that calling of the crowd. And it's a calling for us. So what are we meant to hear? Now, you've heard these words said in our culture before, taking up the cross or carrying the cross or bearing one's cross, which in our society generally is an idiom for putting up with something difficult for one's own sake. So in this, uh, while this modern idiom may have originated in reference to the Bible, Let's not mistakenly associate that narrative to that idiom, or this narrative to that idiom, and fail to fully grasp the gravity of what is being said here. Remember, when Jesus says these things to his disciples and the crowd, he has not yet been crucified. This is prophetic talk. Now, Jesus is referencing something that hasn't yet happened. So, to a listener in that day, they're listening to something that's very different than how we, in this day and age, would interpret it. Because we already know that Jesus died on the cross and was buried and rose again. These people have not yet seen that. So, just to take back a little bit, in Jesus' time, the Romans used to use the cross as a form of humiliating public execution. Any, anyone who was sentenced to be crucified uh, underwent a process that was beyond any form of t- torture that is realistically imaginable to anyone in this room, I suspect. In Jesus' time and culture, as Alex portrayed, um, crucifixion involved a public trial, a stripping, a flogging, dragging of that cross into a high public location, then brutal mutilation and eventually death. And this is no lethal and quick death injection. By ancient Roman accounts, after being nailed to the cross itself, after all that happens, an average death uh, took hours with some accounts of actually days happening. So this connotation that Jesus is articulating is of taking up the cross is far beyond our idiom of bearing difficulties. The gravity of what Jesus is telling his listeners here uh, from verse 34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, is utterly shocking. It implies giving up your social status, your comfort, 
your identity, your culture, your family, your relationships, your wealth, and ultimately your life. So now that Jesus has our attention as he calls us with these shocking words, what is he calling us to do? And how are we to think about this call? If you will, allow me to offer three different facets of the gospel as you think and wrestle through this calling into all of our lives. So I want to talk about the perspective of the gospel, the priorities of the gospel, and the promise of the gospel. So first, the perspective of the gospel. So as we read in verse 35, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. So we learned about Peter's heart, but let me ask you now, are we so different? We want to make our own life. We want to fulfill our own plan. We are inwardly focused. We chase after short-term pleasures, comfort, instant gratification. We want to build our own kingdom. Perhaps, as Alex articulated, Peter even seemed to have more noble causes, looking for who he perceived as the Messiah for political freedom or for the Israelites. But we learned that even Peter's perspective was short-sighted. In fact, the whole world, by definition, is secular. In other words, we're temporary or not eternity-minded. However, we know that the gospel is counterintuitive and countercultural. In contrast to our view of time, the Bible describes our life as just a vapor that appears for a little while, then vanishes away. And so the gospel is eternal. And importantly, while our earthly lives are temporal, our souls are eternal. So when Jesus says in verse 36, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Jesus' perspective is the eternalness of, the, of our worth uh, through our soul. Now, we spend energy and time and our efforts uh, for our temporal pleasures. When Jesus is actually talking about our soul for eternity, he gives us that new perspective that points to the great vastness of the gospel in so much that the whole world is nothing compared to the worth of the soul. As Jesus said in verse 36, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? So that's the perspective of the gospel. Now the priority of the gospel. We heard from our previous speakers here faithfully present Jesus, Jesus as he really was, which is far less concerned about pleasing and far more concerned about the truth. Jesus is not what we would call nice. He's not pleasant in the way that we would call pleasant. He is focused on saving. He's on mission. The gospel truth that we are sinners, that we desperately need Christ, and that we are to confess our sins and follow him with our whole heart is at the core of Christ's mission. This good news uh, may be incredibly offensive to our culture now. But the gospel is prioritized to glorify God, which is our good. 
and in turn will save our soul. So given this priority of the gospel, what does it, take, what does it look like um, to take up the cross? And what does denying yourself look like? So if we're going to deny ourselves, it, must, it may help to first look at who we are. In that Peter narrative, we got a first-hand look at who Peter was. But the way we got to know Peter was his heart was revealed against the truth. So when we bring the light of perfect truth against our lives, oftentimes it is not pretty, and it may result in some pain, but we get to know ourselves and start recognizing our idols. The Peter narrative is not the first time we see this in the Bible. This is a repeat pattern throughout the whole of the Bible. When we see God's will contrasted against the stubbornness of Jonah, or the pride of Samson, or the tempted heart of David, and, and well, frankly, the, the whole history of ancient Israel going back and forth against God's will. At these times, we get to know these people, and at these times against truth, we get to know our hearts. When there is truth in our lives, God may be bringing light into our sin and our idols. So if I may be so bold to ask some of these truths, um, a a few questions. So, what is your response to a call of prayer? Does it make you refreshed and close to God, or does it inconvenience you? The same question about reading the Bible. Does it feel like you want to know more of the Bible Or does it inconvenience you or take you out of your schedule? Or how do you receive correction? Does it make you boil? Or do you receive it openly, humbly? Or to conflict? Or when somebody sins against you? What goes through your mind when you hear that we are to submit to one another? And what goes through your heart when you have to apologize? Or do you find giving joyfully and sacrificially difficult? And how do you respond to the call to go, as Steve Hong talked about uh, the other week, and spread the news of the gospel? Now, these questions cannot be answered by anyone but you, honestly, as you spend time with God. But as we wrestle with these truths of the Bible, we will see in, our, in areas in our hearts where our idols live and where uh, there is maybe darkness in your life. Now, we are not to ignore these dark areas and take Satan lightly and give him room to entrap you. After all, in the Bible, Satan is described as the prince of the power of the air. So in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Jesus gives us a stern warning. If this characterizes and continues to describe and rule our life. So Jesus says, 
for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. That's the stern warning that Jesus gives. Thankfully, uh, there is hope, which brings us to the last point, which is the promise of the gospel. So if we continue in that same chapter, Ephesians 2, uh, Paul continues to write, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So we are promised, this is the gospel promise, to, we get to be with Jesus, alive together with him. Our eternal souls saved. Be with the Son of Man in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. That's the ultimate promise of the gospel, the good news. But another great thing about the promise of the gospel is that we receive the Holy Spirit now. Now Jesus tells us, In John chapter 14, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells in you and will be in you. So the promise of the gospel is that if we are believers, we also have this Holy Spirit Now, even before we are fully with Jesus in glory when he comes again. In other words, we are not alone now. And we will be with him for eternity later. And that should be encouraging. And that is how we can walk by faith and not by sight. And that is how we can take up his cross and follow him. So in conclusion, New Hope And especially if you have not yet received Christ as your Savior. Let us confess because he forgives. Let us pray for faith because he is trustworthy. And let us repent because our God is powerful and sovereign. And through him, repentance is possible. So let us obey him because he is good. Let us pray. Father God, you are good. And uh, despite our hearts being so temporal and so inwardly focused, Father, we pray that you give us faith, that we are able to confess and repent and uh, let go of the things that are of this world and pursue following you. Father, you've promised us great things and you've given us the Holy Spirit to be able to uh, do your work now. Father, thank you, Lord, and we pray that your kingdom come. In Jesus' Lord's name we pray.